Before we turn in the uh, epistle of James for our lesson this morning, uh, I want to let you know that uh, a week ago I announced that Mildred Pritchett, one of our older members, had passed away. Mildred sang in our choir for uh, many years as she came to us from Bible Presbyterian Church. Well, her service is only is going to be this afternoon at 3 o'clock at Macon Memorial Park, but I wanted you to know that. Uh, James chapter 4, we're on page 1013 in these Bibles in the pews. Reading from James chapter 4, verses 13 through the end of the chapter. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Father, you tell us that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. And we, we come today with hungry souls. We ask that you would feed us, nourish us, for we are dry, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It's been a few weeks since we were last looking at James. If you've not been here with us, or today if you're first time I, uh, with us, I remind you that there are many Jameses in the New Testament. And, and best we know, the best conclusion, though we don't know absolutely for sure, is that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, that wrote this epistle. Uh, he did not become a believer until after the resurrection uh, of Jesus. He was there, uh, though, in Jerusalem when the gospel went forth and when the church began to be persecuted. Uh, James is dealing with a lot of practical issues, like the need not to show favoritism based on whether someone has money or not, uh, the need to control the tongue, realizing how powerful the tongue is for good or for evil. We've looked at uh, faith in the midst of trials. So there's a very practical bent to the book of James. It's also important to know that, that James was written to the believers that were scattered. They had been persecuted or being persecuted. They had fled from Jerusalem, and now they are sc scattered all around the Mediterranean. So this letter, unlike most other letters in the New Testament, was not written to one group of people in one place. It was not written to one church like the church at Rome or the church in Philippi. But there was application for all. He's not dealing with issues that were just in one church, which makes it clear that there's an application for all of us as well. Uh, so as we come to the end of the chapter today, he's going to talk about presumption and presumptuous planning. And he starts with a, almost like a scene. Picture a scene of a, a room of merchants, and they are, they are, gathered, they are gathered around perhaps a, a table that has a map of the Roman Empire. And they are looking and studying and saying, there, we need to go there because the roads are in that area. They're looking at the traffic patterns like we do today and the, the flow of people and the demographics. And they're saying, if we buy that piece of property right there, we know what's coming. We should be able to double or triple our money in a short amount of time. Uh, so they're not doing anything wrong, and yet we find condemnation here. For what is happening. They're not doing anything wrong on the surface. 
What James says is wrong about this is that it, their words reveal the sin of presumption. Now, in preparing this, I presumed, I knew the definition of presumption. So I pulled my Webster's Collegiate Dictionary and saw that presumption is an attitude or belief dictated by probability. But then it gave a synonym, audacity. That doesn't sound as nice. Oh, the audacity of saying we will go there or there and do this and make a profit. The certainty, the confidence. Often our speech reveals our sins. We mentioned a few weeks ago when we looked at one of the passages on speech that what wags the tongue often rules the heart. Often what's going on here is going to come out in our speech. Uh, so sometimes when we say something, say, I'm sorry, that really wasn't me. That was you. It just came out. You know, the real, the real chip was revealed. And so James says about their speech, uh, the speech that we read in verse 13, that it's presumptuous and arrogant. And it is so in several ways. One, they assume or presume, like we do, that we will live as long as we please. Hey, we're going to go to such and such a city and we're going to do this. It presumes we can make whatever plans we please. We can go today or tomorrow, the choice is strictly ours. And it also presumes that we have the capacity to carry out, to execute our plans that we conceive of. And then to declare, we will make a profit. Now the way they were thinking, and often the way we are thinking and speaking, uh, reveals certain things. See, presumptuous planning forgets our ignorance. It forgets how little we actually know. We, we can think we can plan out a, a year in advance or five years in advance or 10 years in advance, but we don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what this afternoon will bring. And there's probably not an individual or a family in this room, a, a crowd this size, that, that's not been affected by something that happened suddenly and no one saw it coming. Whether it was a car accident, whether it was a family member that had a stroke and life changed, immediately, permanently, for a whole lot of people? We don't know. So we live with the reality, which we tend to forget, that everything can change at every moment, and we are ignorant about that. Your financial situation can change. Your own health can change. Those close to you. Secondly, this presumptuous planning forgets that we are frail. Verse 14 makes it sound like we think we can master our, our destinies, but our lives, he says, are insubstantial and they are fleeting as the morning mist. Growing up in North Alabama, my parents would take my sister and myself in the summers to some friends' house on Lake Gunnersville. The Tennessee River flows into Lake Gunnersville. It's a very large lake. And one of the things I remember and enjoyed very much as a, a young boy was... We'd, uh, I'd sleep in these bunk beds in this pretty rustic cabin, and at night, we'd, before we'd go to sleep, we'd be down fishing on the, on the pier, on the dock. And it was fun to fish with a Coleman lantern right there and a, attracting certain fish and the, the willow flies and so forth at certain times of the year that the fish would come for. And then before we'd go up, we would always bait the hooks, leave the hooks in the water, and know that we're in for a surprise in the morning. This is going to catch something. There's going to be a fish on the end of this line. So we'd go up and go to sleep, 
and then come back, and if it had been cool the night before, without, doubt, without a doubt, there would be a, a fog, a, a mist on the water. You know how it is at a lake, you know, for about what looks to be about two or three feet. It's just covered with mist. I'd go down at dawn, check the hooks to see if there was anything there, maybe a catfish or something like that, and then play around on the, the dock, fish some more, and guess what happened in about an hour? The mist is gone, clear as it could be to see across, across the lake. Now, James uses that picture of our life not to say that your life is as meaningless as a mist, not to be morbid or say that, that it doesn't count, it's of no consequence. He's saying that by the standards of eternity, our life is as a mist. It is so temporary. Think about the, the death-to-life ratio for every human is one-to-one. The reality is we will all die unless Christ comes again before that happens. Uh, and the, also the reality is that the, for the vast majority of us, we will be greatly missed by our immediate family and by a few close friends. But within just a generation or two, it's very likely that our great-grandchildren will not know our names. Life is like a mist. It's that way for all of us. It's here and then it's gone. Third, not only is presumptuous planning forgets that we don't know everything, not only does presumptuous planning forget our frailty and our lives are like a mist, third, it forgets our dependence on God. What stands out here, which seems to be nothing wrong, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit, verse 13. What's wrong is there's no mention of God there. God is not part of the equation in their minds, apparently. Now James, again, is writing to believers. He's writing to people who claim to be Christ followers. He's not writing to pagans. You would expect unbelievers not to talk about God or think about their plans in light of God. But here he's writing to Christians that we would say today have compartmentalized their faith. You know what it means to compartmentalize? You take your emotions and say, I've got to, I'm going into a situation, I've just got to put this over here and I can't allow myself to think about it or to feel anything about it while I'm doing this. Well, some of us may be inclined to compartmentalize our faith. And it, it affects us maybe one day a week or half a day a week, but the other six days, it doesn't enter. How I do business, how I relate to people, how I talk about people, how I spend my free time, how I spend money, or anything like that. That's a compartmentalized faith. Well, they, these people apparently are compartmentalizing their planning. God does not enter into the picture. He is not on the radar. They do not factor him into their plans. Jesus told another parable making the identical point in Luke chapter 12. I, I'll read. I'll read it to you. He told him a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That is a well-known parable. You know that story if you've heard any of the Bible. Jesus does not call the man foolish for being productive, for his land being productive. He does not call the man foolish for storing up. He does not call the man foolish, apparently, for being wealthy. What does he call him foolish for? He does not take God into the equation as to what God wants him to do with all of his produce, the harvest that he had made. And he's foolish because he has planned for everything but what will happen, and that is life after death. He has not made any preparation for his soul. He's only been concerned about the here and now. One person put it, the man thought his problem was he had little barns and lots of time. Instead, he had big barns and a little bit of time. Our Lord used this as a warning concerning arrogant presumption. So what does, if I was sitting where you are and paying attention, I would ask, so what does the Bible say about planning? Surely James is not saying, well, we just kind of see how each day unfolds, make no plans for the future. No, of course not. We can look at other places in Scripture, and God uses the smallest, one of the smallest creatures to teach this lesson. He uses the ant in Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So there is one passage where God in his word is, is telling us to learn from nature, learn from the ant that gathers up food in the summer when there's plenty so it will have an adequate supply in the winter where there is little. We also see that godly leaders who planned were commended by the Lord. The Bible commends Moses for planning to lead the people out of Egypt. God blessed Joshua for planning to lead Israel into Canaan. Paul planned to take the gospel to unreached people around the Mediterranean. He is commended for that. And so we find that biblical characters do not hesitate to say, I will, we will go to such and such and, and do such and such. So such planning can be very good and commended by the Lord. And by the way, this is a parenthesis, uh, everybody's different when it comes to planning and scheduling and so forth. In when I meet with couples for premarital counseling, one of the tools I use is a, is a survey written by Dr. Norman Wright. He, I don't know if Dr. Wright's still living. He was the, uh, it's kind of the grandfather of Christian counseling in, in America. And he wrote this eight-page eight survey, and it, it's just trying to, to study e each family uh, of how did your parents relate? Is there a divorce in the background? How, grandparents, who were the decision makers? How was money handled? Who's a saver? Who's a spender? Uh, uh, all sorts of things like that. And then on the last page, I always like to go over this last page because it's, it assumes the, the people are probably in their 20s getting married, but, or 20s or 30s, and it says, what do you want to be doing? Describe your life at age 30. And then it says, describe your life at age 40. And then, what do you want to be doing at age 50? So it asks by decades. And I, I've, I've lost count of how many couples I've gone over that with. And often what does stand out is one will be much more geared toward planning for the future than the other, thankfully. 
you know, I'm thankful for both. One will be, well, in 10 years, I'd like this to be, I want to be out of graduate school. We want to have two children by then. One, and, and the other may be saying, well, I, you know, hey, that sounds fine to me. The, the one that stood out to me the most was a couple I met with, and the fellow was a, a planner off the chart. And when I said, what do you want to be doing at age 40? And this person was in his 20s. He said, I know exactly what I want to be doing. I want to purchase the house, and he gave me the address in St. Simons, and we're going to be living in that house, and this is what I'm going to be doing. I was impressed. You know, I don't, uh, I've forgotten the address, but, but he knew. And all of us can learn from this. I, I, uh, I've learned that. I, I, you may wonder why, I'd, why I've never written a book on marriage. But when Barbara, and I, when Barbara and I were first married, my wife loves people, and she's spontaneous, and she's fun. You, you've been around her, and she's got the energy of three of me and two of most other people. And um, I thought I could help her out. I'm a planner. I, I'm a strategist. So I, the first Christmas, I gave her a planning tool. I gave her in the old days a, a daytimer, and I thought I'd help her out. And, the scar is almost gone. <laughs> In those days, it was the equivalent of a Peloton. That's what it was. <laughs> Don't do that, guys. When I write my book, it'll, it, um, it will just be for men on what not to do. All right, so let's move on to verse 15, how to plan. So if we are to plan, he says, instead, all right, there's a right way to do this. You ought to say, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. So godly planners dedicate their plans to God. It's fine to make the plans, but we don't leave God out. I have a friend that used to live in middle Georgia, now lives in another state, sold a business for a lot of money, went to retire in another state. I was talking to him sometime later. He said, well, I've started another business. I said, I didn't think you need to do that. He said, I wanted to give more money to missions. The whole purpose of this business is to make money, to give it to missions. I thought that is a very good way to plan, not just because of what he was going to use the money for, but it was a, I hope to do this, I want to do this. With God's blessing, it was, it was planning and carrying it out under the assumption that God was in control. Secondly, godly planners confess they need God's favor. We know we can't, that we can do everything right and still fail. Psalm 127, you know that verse, unless the Lord builds a house, we labor in vain. We can fail and learn much from that. There was a custom in times past that Christians would write on their correspondence. There was a time people wrote on paper and mailed it, and, and, and they would write the Latin letters D-V, for Deus Valenti, meaning God willing. So they would close their letter, D-V, God willing. And Maybe we need that again, not a trite cliche, not just something that you think is, is cool at the moment, but an attitude of the heart. We find this when Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, he says he's coming back to Corinth if God wills. And yet over in Romans 15, he says he's coming, but he doesn't say if God wills. It was an attitude of the heart, not just uh, a word phrase. Third, godly planners confess that whatever they achieve is through the gifts and favor of God, and we need to hear this all the time. We're all heirs of God's generosity. If you are intelligent, if you're a woman here and you're very intelligent, 
Uh, did you earn that or inherit that? I mean, was it something God gave you? If a person is a great singer, did that person choose their vocal cords? Did they engineer their vocal cords? If you have lots of energy, did you choose your metabolism? If you are very experienced and wise, who do we credit, you or your mentors? If a person is a great athlete, did he or she construct their muscle fibers? I mentioned at the first service that professional baseball players are endowed with a, a certain thing that most people don't have. The best ones have what is technically called elite vision. Can you imagine having a three-inch baseball, three-inch in diameter, thrown at speeds about 90 miles an hour that takes half a second to reach the plate from that pitcher's hand, and during that time, the batter must decide and judge for himself the speed of the pitch ball, the curve of the pitch ball, and then when to swing to hit the ball, all in a matter of milliseconds. Now, some of us here at one time or another had 20-20 vision. We're typically told that's the best vision. You may have 20-20 vision this morning. If you have 20-20 vision, you could not hit the pitch of a professional baseball player because professional baseball players have to have 20-12 vision. That means at 20 feet away, they see the baseball the same way you or I would see it at 12 feet away. And the very best ones have 28 vision. So at 20 feet, the ball looks to them like it would look to you and me at eight feet away. And you either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you cannot hit a baseball thrown by a professional baseball player. That's why Michael Jordan, phenomenal athlete, once in a generation athlete, could not hit a baseball. He was not endowed with the vision to do it. Now, is, should that person be proud of that and arrogant and look down on others who don't have it? No, not any more than you and I should look down at a person who because of background or race or timing, did ne they never had the opportunities we had. When I meet people that say, well, if someone, in, we're very involved in Pleasant Hill, as you know that, our church is. And when someone says, well, uh, if you're in Pleasant Hill, why don't they get a job? All right, let's say you're 14 years old in Pleasant Hill, 15 years old, and you want a job. Where are you going to get a job? Well, you've got to go where the new stores are. Where are the new stores? They're at the new mall. You know how long it takes to take a bus from Pleasant Hill to the new mall? An hour and a half. And we don't realize, hey, I can move about. I've got a car. I'm able to drive. What's the point? The point is godly planners recognize that what we have and what we achieve are the gifts and the favor of God. And so rather than thinking, boy, look how hard I've worked. Look how successful I am. Look how I've honed my skills. We can say, thank you, Lord, that we are able today to plan such and such. And we ask your blessing. We're going to go to this place and make a profit. Lord willing. Okay. Let's come to the last verse, which looks to be out of place. It looks like James forgot something because there at the end he switched gears and says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Honestly, when I read that, I thought, well, maybe I should just stop at verse 16. It looks like, you know, the chapters and paragraphs were added later. 
it looks like, and the guy who did it rode horseback most of the time, so it looked to me like he hit a bump on the horse and put the verse in the wrong chapter. Seriously, it doesn't look like it goes there, but it does. What James is doing is referring to everything that's come before about speech and slander and godly planning, and he's also talking about what's going to come in the next chapter, which is the rich not oppressing the poor, and in all these practical areas, he says whoever knows the right thing to do but doesn't do it, it's sin. Now, when you look at it that way, we all fail the test. We all fail the test because all of us know a whole lot more about what we should do than we actually do. So in leaving, as we conclude, uh, I want to address this, and that has to do with planning. It's amazing today that some people will plan for every contingency. They are insured, their life, their car, their house, their medical care. They plan how much they're going to need if they retire, if they reach a certain age. And when you say, Have you, what's going to happen after you die? Well, I don't know. Nobody can know that for sure. The Bible would call that person a fool to make those kind of plans about this life and not to be prepared for something that is going to happen. So it would be criminal of me to leave on that note. So I want to conclude with a presentation of the bad news, good news. How a person can be right with God. And let me explain it to you. It starts at the very beginning of the Bible when God made our ancient parents, Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, and Adam and Eve had the five senses we have, taste and sight and hearing and so forth, but they also had a sixth sense. They had a spiritual sense, a spirituality, a life where they could literally walk and talk with God with no shame and no fear, and they had perfect communion with one another. God gave them one prohibition. He said they were not to eat a particular tree. They violated that prohibition. They committed a crime against God. And he said the punishment would be death. So they died. But if you've read Genesis, you know they didn't die physically at that point. They lived a long time afterwards. They died spiritually. So that communication with God, that perfect um, sense, that spirituality with God was lost. So they hide from God. They hide from each other. There's shame. There's fear. Uh, there's guilt. And when God punished them by expelling them from the garden, he at the same time gave a promise that he would send a redeemer. And that is why the first child that was born to them, you know what the name means? It's him. How would you like to be named? It's him. It was him thinking this is the redeemer. This is the one God promised to send. Of course, it wasn't. He came much later. Um, but we start off where Adam and Eve ended up, spiritually dead. We come into this world, and we don't have that communication with God. So God the Son came to earth, Jesus Christ, and he lived a perfect life. He never sinned against God. He never, uh, he never committed a crime against God. And he allowed himself to be arrested and tried at a kangaroo court, and he was convicted, and he was nailed to a Roman cross as a substitute for others. And when he was on that cross, God took my sin, and he put my sin on him. He put my sins on him and punished him in my place. 
Uh, and, and so he took the punishment. He took the penalty for my sin against him. He made a complete payment. He died on that cross. For the Bible says the payment for sin is death. His body was taken down from the cross. It was placed in a borrowed tomb. His enemies thought, well, that'll be the end of that. But three days later, he rose physically from the grave. Death could not hold him because he'd, he'd broken the power of sin and of death. He had paid the penalty. He appeared to people over a period of 40 days, over 2,000 people, we think, first and last. And at the end, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is now, he told his disciples to go into all the world, to all nations, and tell people what God now offers through Christ. So that is what I'm doing at the moment. I'm following what Jesus told his followers to do. Have you received his gift of eternal life? To do so, it's not something we can earn or deserve. You must believe that Jesus was God the Son. Maybe you don't have all the answers, none of us do. But you understand that he was perfect, that he never sinned, that he died for you, that you cannot make yourself right through your own efforts or your own good works, and that when he died, God the Father put your sins on Jesus and punished him in your place. And now you turn from going your own way, you say, Lord, I want rather than living just for what I want or what others expect, I want to live for you. I want to follow you. And when that happens, you are enabled then to begin loving God. Loving God. God. When we are born again, we are then enabled to plan in a godly way and to plan for eternity. Let's pray together. Our Father, all that we have has been entrusted to us by you. We recognize some of those things and we are not conscious of many others, but we are grateful for that. And we pray you'd help us to live in the present and to serve you, as Scripture says, in our generation and yet at the same time to be godly in planning, whether it's work or family or whatever arena of where it is, and yet we are, as we do so, that we submit our plans to you, that we recognize that we are under your sovereign hand and that we depend on you. May our trust be in Christ and in him only. We do not know what tomorrow brings. We don't even know what the next hour will bring. Uh, so may he be the rock upon which we stand. In his name we pray. Amen. If you look at your order of worship on the on the last page is the doxology please stand if you will and we'll be dismissed with the benediction a blessing from god and then please remain standing and we will sing together the doxology depart with the blessing of god now may grace mercy and peace from god the father and the son and the holy spirit be with you all amen